Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and my lolly-gagging co-host, Oliver Jones. Today's conversation is with Hamish Grierson. Hamish is the CEO and founder of personalized healthcare platform Thriver. Thriver empowers individuals to take control of their health management through regular in-the-post blood tests. The results are quickly and beautifully presented on their platform with medical guidance for each biomarker. Thriver is at the forefront of the preventive health movement, and we talk about this in depth, covering topics like the diabetes epidemic, genomics, and predictive data. Stool transplants and robo-leeches even get a mention. Hamish is a fount of fascinating information. We were disappointed to cut the conversation short, but he had to collect his son from school, and he has promised us to return and pick up the thread in due course. There's a bit of background noise from a meeting in the next room at Founders Factory. Apologies in advance for that. The relevant knuckles have been wrapped. So... Without further ado, we bring you Hamish Grierson. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Startup Microdose. Today we're sorting out the world's health problems and perhaps some of our own with Hamish Grierson, founder and CEO of personalized healthcare startup Thriver. Hamish, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks so um, much for having me. I gather you've been busy moving offices today. Yeah, I was uh, um, slightly worried about showing up looking like I'd been in a building site, but that is exactly where I've been. I have to say, you look the quintessence of a, a man's man on the back of a, a motorbike helmet in hand and uh, construction dust. Been shifting furniture all day. That's a, that's a good position for a CEO to be there building your offices um, well I kind of figure if you're gonna you know try and create a new space that the team's gonna hopefully really really like there's a little bit of actually you know put your own stamp on it and do it the way that you'd really like it to be done unfortunately that also means doing some cabinet making <laughs> <laughs> is that a, highly unglamorous is it a bigger space because you're looking in due course to build out the team exactly so I mean we were um, fairly unceremoniously turfed out of the space that we were in and in any case we needed to start thinking about a space that could accommodate probably you know two or three times the size of the team at the moment mm. given our plans um, and I guess the reality is we just took the opportunity to kill two birds with one stone so yeah no it's uh, uh, it's a pretty pretty hefty space but it's also pretty cheap so it'll keep our investors happy um. Well, it's it's great to have you here. And in, in, in any case, um, we've been looking forward to this. We've done our Thriver tests, yes, we and have. so we will look to report on that in due course and get on to talking about Thriver, of course, um, and then hopefully dive into some healthcare issues. Um, but first, by way of introduction to our listeners, perhaps you could just run us through a you know a history of your career so far leading up to Thriver. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's um. I don't necessarily know that there's a particularly formulaic route to starting a company, but mine doesn't feel like one either. Uh, so I started off um, at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, for uh, my degree and did international relations, which of course perfectly qualifies you for a degree, um, uh, sorry, a yeah, career in advertising, which is <laughs> what I decided I wanted to get into, and spectacularly failed to break into the industry uh, having left university. Uh, with one exception, I was uh, offered a job by um, JWT, an agency, uh, managing the Nissan Adventure Sports account. Which I was like, yeah, this is going to be the best job in the world. Mm -hmm. And 
I think I might be one of the only people in the world to be made redundant before I started work. <laughs> so whilst I was in the interview, uh, WPP put a recruitment freeze across the entire company. And the guy left the interview, picked up his email, read it, <laughs> and then had to call me and be like, that job offer. <laughs> I'm really sorry, but <laughs> I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to renege on my... What year an inauspicious start. What year was yeah. that? Just... By, by the by oh the god uh, so where are we now this must have been uh, the better part of 10 years ago no a bit more than that so probably 2006 2007 something like okay. that um, anyway so I ended up working with my uh, my half brother and um, we set up a little consultancy I mean in truth he set it up and I worked for him and we were doing a combination of different things but basically um, trying to monetize mobile applications in the broadcast media space so actually what that means is um this is right at the dawn of the iphone era the big radio groups didn't really know um what they were going to do on mobile but they knew they needed to be on mobile so um we worked with a company who had a, uh, access to a, an iphone dev house or iphone app dev house i should say and uh, essentially we created a barter network where we'd offer the apps for free to the big radio groups in exchange for the ability to monetize the real estate inside the apps and then I went around trying to sell the real estate to all the advertising agencies and um, I think it's fair to say that broadly it was a complete failure um, <laughs> because the advertising agencies in particular just didn't know how to buy mobile ads back then which kind of seems ridiculous now but you know, there'd be like one person in the entire agency's mobile team. Or they wouldn't have a mobile team. You go and talk to the guys who are doing, um, you know, radio and TV. So it was um, the school of hard knocks, you know, you kind of have to learn how to how to sell to people who don't really want to, um, want to be sold to. And uh, after that, I um, helped my brother launch a, a French language radio station in London, French Radio London, uh, which he just sold actually. Um, and after that, I started, a, I guess, my first company with my uh, my other brother. <laughs> I do work with people who are not in my family. Yeah, your name ain't Chris, and you're not coming in. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So we uh, we we all um, uh, in our family uh, kind of loved skiing. We came to it really quite late, but we just picked it up and loved it. Um, uh, from the day we started and we wanted to create a skiing company so we set up a company called Ski Neon and um, the gap in the market that we perceived that um, we ultimately created Ski Neon to try and fulfill was that people either went out to go and get absolutely trousered or they went out super high end really really luxury but there was very little in the middle so we thought wouldn't it be good to create something that was affordable but really well thought out and with a really really heavy emphasis on having fun so we created Ski Neon and as the name kind of suggests uh, there was this massive 80s dressing up box there was this huge party room um, in the chalet that we'd rented and we just ran skiing holidays um, and it was great it was a, it was a big success uh, learned that I think if you sustain a lifestyle in the mountains, you probably become alcoholic really, really quickly. <laughs> it's really funny you say this. Um, RMD owns a chalet um, in Mojave. And the problem is, I think there's an idea of how you get things done in the Alps. 
and so you call people up to go and fix stuff and, and make the repairs or deliver people to do things and you cannot rely on anybody they're permanently pissed they're permanently yeah well they're permanently pissed, pissed. and uh, I mean the French do the amazing things I'm getting really off topic here um, you know lunchtime is a really common time to shut restaurants <laughs> So, you know, you go and try and find tradespeople. I mean, it's the same kind of mentality. I I mean, ultimately, there's an assumption that everyone kind of needs more work over here, right? There's a sort of, I can labor um, with greater ability and therefore earn more money. The French just don't. And I think people in in the ski resorts need more free time and chill in their head. I think they just want. more time up the mountains. Also, lunchtime in France is from about 11am till 4. <laughs> so it's extremely yeah. problematic. The thing is, this is hilarious because I've obviously we've been reading around Thriver and stuff like this, but I had no idea of any of this context, which has delighted me immeasurably. I feel like I'm just basking in this like potted history. Um, and the outs is hilarious because we've raised for two ski companies, uh, Faction Skis and Rurog. Oh, right, cool. Yeah, so both so super interesting in their own faction right. Faction are... I mean, I've never owned a pair of Faction skis, but if you ever... Um, I wish we get you a discount code. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get you a discount code. I think we can. I, uh, yeah, I really, really rate them. Um, the only other thing to, to mention in the sort of slightly randomised, potted chronology of uh, Hamish Grissom is um, back when I was sort of 21, I'd been at university for a couple of years, and we did what every single uh, student does, usually twice a day, which is to go to the local in our case Sainsbury's buy a load of food and take it home and cook it you know, the idea that you buy a week's worth of shopping was anathema all too much organisation <laughs> so um, I think after the 200th trip I walked out with my bag of food and a load of paper receipts in my hand and I just looked at the receipt and I thought, you know, this was as um, the green eco movement was really starting to catch on and I thought there must be a way of electronically delivering what is a completely and utterly um, seemingly needless part of a transaction, right? I'm sure there's a legal obligation to provide you with a receipt, but can't we just do this electronically? Mm. And I spent the next sort of two and a half years in my spare time trying to launch a business called EPOP and um, essentially learned one lesson very early. I had no network. You know, I don't come from um, a family that's particularly plugged into the sort of innovation. It's the greatest in mafia. <laughs> yeah, sadly doesn't extend or didn't extend back then into uh, the sort of spaces that I needed it to. Um, and yeah, essentially it ran aground. I just couldn't ever get it off the ground. I wasn't technical. I couldn't build you know early versions of the product. And um, Actually, brilliantly, I met a guy completely um, sort of at random who is now doing that business, and he's absolutely nailing it. What's it called? Uh, Y Receipts. Because we saw a couple um, a few years ago, and I remember thinking it was um, it was a really smart business. But the problem is, is some of the um, lock-ins that those payment providing systems have, like Sainsbury's. You remember when Sainsbury's didn't have contact listing? Like, why on earth they not have contact listing? Because they're locked into these just long protracted contracts which are really hard to get out of so as an incumbent into the yeah. space i can see probably why you didn't get very far initially but it's a genius business yeah and uh, alex is a um alex kayser the guy who's running wireless he's a totally brilliant guy as well so i kind of just glad it happened finally anyway so anyway you know rolling on finished the ski season um and i was fortunate enough to go on a uh, program called the new entrepreneurs foundation and yeah uh, the NEF, as it's known for obvious reasons. The NEF. Some <laughs> the NEF. I am a NEFer. <laughs> 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 uh, 
I know. The, act, the acronym could have been sharp. So it's a uh, it's a it's a charity as an organisation, and their um, their reason for existing in the world is they want to make young entrepreneurs better young entrepreneurs, um, and they do it brilliantly. It really was responsible for um, a huge change in my life, and the way that it works is you're um, taken and kind of placed at a host company for uh, twelve months. <laughs> And you're pulled out and given training in marketing and finance and um, resilience and some slightly sort of softer skills and you know how to build your first DCF forecasts and um, I think the, the the thing that that program ultimately gave me was a feeling like I'd kind of found my people for the first time. Mm. I'd always felt like um, it was it was either too too kind of grand. Um, I kind of felt like a player without the numbers on, on the entrepreneurs um, on, the, on the entrepreneurship side of things um, but I kind of finally surrounded myself with a group of people who you know this kind of stuff was just completely normal and um, it's different isn't it you, you we found that since you surround yourself with more entrepreneurial types you find um, at first you're like do I sort of am I just trying to be something and then after a while I think you just accept that it's a certain way of thinking that you just need to keep um, trying new things and you may not have got it yet but like you do find comfort in those circles and, and then you kind of go back into a more kind of corporate sphere in essence sometimes you do feel completely at sea yeah and I um, I was incredibly lucky I essentially spent four and a half years at the host company that um, I was placed at and I just got taken under the wing of some of the most brilliant people the CEO of TravelX, which is where I was working, uh, is now the CEO of um, Paddy Power, um, Betfair, and um, has been a you know a really big supporter uh, ever since. I got to work with one of the most brilliant CMOs, one of the most incredible commercial um, uh, analysts is the wrong word, but you know just a, an amazing um, uh, sort of commercial force, um, and. Yeah, I got schooled in the art of actually executing good business and got the opportunity to launch new products in a whole raft of different countries, open accelerator offices. Um, I launched a product called Supercard for them, which is a sort of Revolut-type product. Um, and it was incredible. And really, I think, you know, without, without the experience... Um, yeah, of course, network and all those things are super important. But without the experience at TravelX, the chances of any new venture that I ultimately would go on to launch succeeding were exponentially smaller. So university students now who are you know hearing about this this wonderful startup ecosystem and they think, well, I want to get involved with that. Shall I start something at university or, 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 or just leaving? Would your recommendation be to try and get on a mentoring scheme at the NEF or um, work at a company first before setting up your own thing? So my um, look, my perspective on this is um, conveniently, um, <laughs> I, I suppose, allied to my experience. But I Makes think, sense. Um, look, my view on it is there are two kinds of entrepreneur. One you can, you can craft and one you, you can't really mold, but you probably don't need to. 
um, they're the kind of entrepreneurs that you you tend to read about in the papers more often. So, um, you know, the Alan Sugars and Richard Bransons, they are complete one-offs. Mm-hmm. They're flukes. They are products of a unique set of timing um, as well, isn't it? It's I feel like sure, you look sure. at the likelihood of starting an airline now, and I just think I can't relate to that story. I couldn't see a gap in the market where that would be at all possible. And I think some they, there's a sort of if you take the Malcolm Gladwell viewpoint of um, outliers, it's like sometimes you've just happened upon a freak set of circumstances. I mean, you've put yourself in the right place, whether it was sort of Bill Gates writing lines of code and going down to sort of the place where he could use his punch cards and just write software repeatedly because his new library yeah. had a machine to, to do that. Um, but I think there's sort of that match of timing, as you say. Some people just are are this kind of, especially people with a technology background who can kind of build their envisioned future i mean they're almost like a business in a box they're amazing yeah i think I th- so i think there's um there's a huge amount of truth to that you know when you can lay your hands on the tool set that you require to be able to build uh, i'll stop hitting the microphone sorry. <laughs> um be able to build the first iterations of the thing that you ultimately want to go and sell it, it it's a very different place to to be uh, and you know i think there are conversely there are other kinds of entrepreneur and they are entrepreneurs who you know, ultimately are um, they're sort of less uh, only able to go in one direction incredibly powerfully. Uh, they clearly need a huge amount of drive. They need um, to constantly be, you know, aware of their surroundings and circumstances. But I, I don't think there is only one type of entrepreneur. That archetype of you know, I'm going to smash through no matter what anyone tells me. I'm not going to take any advice. I'm just going to keep going. And there are certain businesses that can't be created without entrepreneurs like that. So I guess to get back to the original question, um, if you are that kind of entrepreneur, you're probably not listening to this podcast, which makes my point largely irrelevant. <laughs> um, but if you are, you're going to go and do it anyway. Like me telling you to go and work at a company and get some experience, like you know, whatever, you're going to fucking do it whatever, well, whatever this, anyone this will you. raise a point i'm going to throw in later into the podcast about the dangers of the evangelical entrepreneur and by that i mean the elizabeth holmes example which we will get on to sure. but like that is sort of the dark side of that unwavering belief in yourself amongst uh, sort of against the face of any kind of criticism um i i do actually completely respect entirely what you're saying because I've been doing this for seven and a half years and there's been an interesting movement in the startup space, which I say 2013, 2014, clearly the cost associated with building an app had dropped right down and the interest had gone right up. So a lot of people were coming out of management consultancies to set up a business and um, the problems they were solving were quite sort of generalist. They were very consumer facing. It was very much take a business model and then just apply it to each specific vertical you can possibly think of an application for it um and i think what we're seeing now or what i'm starting to see again is that you probably need to spend a little time in industry to see where the real problems are emerging again because when it was dealing with consumer issues you could look at yourself as a consumer and say oh you're right i don't get my laundry as quickly as i'd like that's a problem for me therefore i should make a business around it whereas what we're seeing now is the technology curve is obviously going up and the barrier to entry for entrepreneurship is going up because a lot of the simple ideas have been done and that's so right. i think you're yeah i think it's absolutely spot, spot on, on. Yeah. yeah um that you you just need to spend a bit of time getting comfortable with where the problems are um especially in the uk i think we favor a lot of b2b models where you 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 need to understand both where the weaknesses are in the traditional enterprise models but also where they're willing to accept 
change. Sure. Yeah, and you know the idea that you have to map stakeholders to be able to understand who you're really selling to. It's just some of that stuff that comes with having done it. Yeah. I mean, you look. Of course, you can learn it, and if you're smart and bullish, you'll figure it out. Um, I just, I, I guess, I wonder um, at what cost, you know, either financially or emotionally. It, it, I think there's a uh, there's a huge amount of damage that can potentially be done by people taking a view <clears throat> of the sort of glamour and um, uh, ultimately payout from starting a new company, starting something when it's not the right idea and they're not ready, screwing it up and never going back to mm. innovation in the same way uh, again because they've been really burned by it. Uh, I don't know how true that is. I don't have a, uh, any sort of hard data behind it. Um, I think th the only other thing that I'd mention on it, I this is a little bit of a bugbear, but it, it's entirely um, uh, it's entirely balanced as a view. It, it, hopefully, what I'm about to say will make sense. The startup discourse, the, the innovation discourse, is almost exclusively dominated by um, the people who have the biggest vested interests in stimulating and finding and ultimately owning either entirely or shares of new businesses. So it's, it's dominated by VCs. And, um, you know, layer on top a little bit of the, uh, the kind of magic dust that um, the Zuckerberg story getting onto film starts to do. And actually what you start seeing is people start um, thinking about um, success in relative terms to whether or not you can raise a huge amount of money and turn something into a billion dollar business. Mm. <clears throat> And the, the problem that I have with that is there's a huge amount uh, of good stuff associated with access to, to capital, um, be that you know VC cash or VCT cash or angel cash. W what saddens me slightly is that when people are sitting in their bedrooms thinking about ideas or you know age 45 in the office that they work in thinking about whether there's an opportunity, I, I worry that people think about whether it can be a billion dollar business yeah. as the... Um, the yardstick by which they measure appropriateness to start it or not, and and that for me is is kind of crazy. Right? Yeah, what's wrong with starting a a sustainable, decent business that has a that solves a real problem in the marketplace? Yeah, I, be your you know be your own boss. Um, well, and dilution as well. It's like you can be a, yeah. a founder of a billion dollar company, own one percent, and yeah. and get the same as if you own you know, 50% of a company that sells for 20 million. And it's like, I think they, that they lose sight of that objective, which is that it becomes, as you say, vanity. And I think VC money particularly comes with a huge amount of expectation. If you've just left your job to start a VC-backed startup, you're given oversight again. And I guarantee you, if you stop hitting your targets, it's going to feel a lot like you've got a boss and possibly worse, actually, because you have all the pressure of employing everybody underneath you. Mm. Um, I do. Yeah, you don't have the agency that you're expecting to no, have. No, you doing completely it. lose no. your agency. You, you, the, so that that is very much, um, very much the case. And for me, the the flip side though is there are businesses like Thriver actually that you know they're just not buildable in a really powerful way without um, kind of rocket fuel cash. Mm. Yeah, of course. And actually, my experience has been that um, certainly with access to good VCs and, um, and angels, your learning curve is 
crazy fast because it has to be because there are expectations and you do have to learn how to manage upwardly to people who you know are now in your world and require upward management too right mm. but you're required to tell a story which is if i tell take you know if you i take on a million pounds of cash um we'll see thriver users grow to half a million by the end of the year and the thing is is i've seen in quite a few examples is building to scale quickly is its own challenge that people also don't warn you about um probably a good time for us actually just to dive headlong into thriver um because i'd love to know how all of that experience then just said this is the issue that i'm going to tackle currently um, which i think is a very salient issue i did biology at university and i've got a huge um, belief that healthcare and data is going to come together for the next five years in a, a big big way and it will be tra- we're already seeing it this year it's the, the amount of interest in kind of healthcare tech startups is um, skyrocketing but you did it probably a couple of years before this trend is emerging so what uh, segued you into um, wanting to start Thriver? Um, it was fairly simple I mean uh, cards at the table you know I'd spent the four and a half years at Travelex analyzing a lot of different businesses maybe unsurprisingly especially in fintech um, but actually the thing that led me down um, the path to Thriver was uh, a marrying of my personal uh, and at the time very much growing fascination with nutrition and health and the sort of early forms of biohacking I'd started getting into Tim Ferriss and the mm-hmm. kind of rabbit hole that that represents <laughs> for anyone who's been through it and yeah. down it um, I'm still in it <laughs> and um, Elliot one of my two co-founders uh, used to work um, he was actually uh, I, I, I was his boss for a little while at Travelax and he has a genetic high cholesterol disposition which means um, every sort of three or four months he has to go and get a blood test done and the the two of us sort of sat and um, I asked him whether uh, you know, he'd ever basically kind of tried to get himself off his statins um, he'd been on them since he was sort of 15 uh, and there was something quite, a, quite emotional for me about like little 15 year old Elliot uh, taking this drug and um, I should caveat by saying you know statins I'm sure saves lots of lives around the world Sure. Um, they also really fuck you up as well, I think. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, 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 neglects, I, I, but, but. that you know they're pretty um, they're pretty hardcore, and I think also you you um, I think even whether it be antidepressant use or regular use of any medication, I think probably overstresses your liver and other organs to just keep processing on a regular basis. So, I mean, I just think even at the most basic level. It's probably nice that your body just gets to form its own sort of homeostasis. Well, my experience with yeah. statins is that people who take it um, often end up being prescribed uh, extra drugs in order to deal with the side effects that accompany statins, and then you end up on a cocktail of meds that are basically keeping you alive yeah. um, until your body is such a decrepit mess that you just expire and normally are not very uh, easy it fashion. Yeah. yeah, and I... Um I mean, look, this is this is not a. Sorry, I didn't mean this to be like a rant against Western medicine. It really isn't. Um, we'll get on to that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's coming. <laughs> but you know, there was a sort of uh, a change in the wind when people started talking and thinking about um, what fat represents in your diet, what sugar means, whether there is a linkage between um, uh, you know the glucose function in your body and cancer. Uh, I'd lost my mother to cancer when I was um, in my first year of university, and you know I suppose that 
just naturally struck a chord with me. So anyway, Ellie and I came together um, over a couple of beers and I got him to show me uh, a, a result. Another friend of ours in the office had got a, gone and got a blood test done. And the results that we were looking at were these just hilarious PDFs of, I mean, anyone who's ever been for a blood test will know it's the least intelligible form of data you're probably ever going to see. Mm. And the irony, of course, is you're not designed to be able to understand it, right? And it's not designed in a way that's trying to encourage you to understand it. So it's, it's not logical, it's not intuitive, and it's made all the harder by the fact that really your doctor's kind of sticking you the two fingers. Um, I mean, not, not them personally, but the system is saying, you know, someone else is going to interpret this for you, and um, it's just not your information. You're not really the one that has it. Which is obscure it. because it's, uh, you're right. It's like, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of mixed bag here, isn't there? Because it's so, we're so careful to protect people's healthcare data, but at the same time, it's your data. It's like, I, it's my blood it's my genetic code that you're looking at please can you give me some oversight of it but as you say comprehensible I think, oversight yes yeah I, and i think that's really critical right i think um you know it's certainly it's not the case that people should just be allowed um uh, kind of unfettered access to a huge amount of data that they could tie themselves in knots with but that is so far off to one end of the spectrum i think there is a now broadly recognized um, uh, uh, sort of change in the way most doctors, um, physicians, clinicians, surgeons think about their patients. And that is that actually you can empower your patients um, and the chances are the health outcomes are probably going to be better as a consequence. You know, there is a, um, I think, a, 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 a now very outdated view um, am among um, largely all uh, of the sort of medical services that we all know and love uh, in the UK that um, you, know, you as a patient um, and we'll come on to talk about the distinction between patients and non-patients later I'm sure but you as a patient um, you probably can actually improve the likely outcome of a particular program that you're going through in the healthcare system by being given ownership of your information, right? I think that is now something that most people recognise as true. Certainly wasn't the case for a very long time then. Um, and and in, so that's a, in a curative sense, but also in a preventative sense, um, the cost saving. So if, we're, if we have the information through Thriver or whatever means um, to track and respond to, to changes, um, and we're given the information about how to deal with them, surely that results in us being better informed enough to, to live a lifestyle that prevents us from, or at least maybe delays, us ending up in a situation of, of being ill, developing a pathology. And that is likely to save the system time, cost, everything else which is I mean especially in the US at the moment where I think I think it's like a third of people are diabetic or pre-diabetic yeah and that's estimated to cost the US government billions yeah um, within the next few years which could in theory that could bankrupt them if their entire population ends up on the diabetic spectrum well, yeah I mean it's epidemic levels no doubt it gets so much more complicated than that as well because, as you say, if that there was, um, I can't remember what the 2020 protocol was, um, but it's saying that the key 
is that people have good health for longer i mean we may not be able to increase life expectancy but, you know that's completely yeah, you want you want to keep the keep the line as flat as possible for as long as possible mm. especially if the population pyramid is starting yeah. to get top heavy which it kind of is so it's like as you say the cost is one more diabetic patients if you do not simply stop the, the initial causes of diabetes for me but second if you have more people via the population skews it's like it will be hugely expensive um i think it's got to be the case that uh, w w i think we sort of look this way again with entrepreneurs it's like prevention is the cure to them trying to bail themselves out by raising more cash it's like this there's, there's, there's just so much sense to it um and what i would like to hark back to um is you had this idea you built it with elliot um and sorry to regress but mechanically like actually because you're not a software startup where somebody was writing a few lines of code how did you cobble this all together because you're dealing with a whole load of unique parts that you hadn't necessarily come from with your your prior com sure, commercial yeah. history. We, we, we aren't and weren't doctors and medics yes it yeah. might help very quickly before you answer that just to explain for those who don't know what exactly all about exactly right yeah. yeah so you touched on um, preventative healthcare well thriver um, is trying to create the world's first preventative healthcare service. And that is a, um, I appreciate, a pretty a pretty grand ambition, um, but we mean it. And practically speaking, the way that we do that today is we enable people uh, to get very easy access and um, very affordable access to essentially what is the cornerstone of any health check, which is often the blood tests. So um, with Thriver, you can order a test online. We send you a little finger prick kit, and that kit contains everything that you need to take a little, maybe unsurprisingly, finger prick test at home. Mm. Um, you collect about uh, eight to 10 droplets of blood. You post it back, free post, standard Royal Mail. Um, it's analyzed by a tier one UCAS accredited lab, often the same labs that the NHS themselves use. And usually within about 36 hours, you'll have a result presented in your online dashboard in a very intuitive form uh, that's been commented on by one of the NHS trained GPs that we work with and if you if you compare that um, to usually what people think about when you say blood testing to them you know, time off work two weeks to wait sitting in a surgery full of sick people trying to persuade the doctor to maybe do test A rather than test B but you know, they don't want to do that. And then what happens to the results? How long do I have to wait? What do they mean? Lack of agency over it, we've, we've already talked about. Um, and we believe that we've already delivered a, a zero to one innovation without having to um, uh, really innovate in the way blood is tested. We very much see it as our, um, as our obligation as, as an organization to stay at the very, very cutting edge of uh, the way people ultimately collect data and the type of data that they collect so that in the fullness of time Thriver has a very compelling ability to deliver in essence predictive analytics mm -hmm. so uh, you already uh, touched on this guys but you know t take a first test with Thriver first test is the hardest test at which to add value for us as a company to you as a consumer because we don't have trend data to comment on right trend data actually it all gets relatively uh, straightforward so predictive analytics will have the power providing that we get enough um, data points to be able to um, make the algorithms work to say hey you know 
Ed, did you know um, people like you who do the following four things are able to reduce their risk of diabetes within the next three months by 20%, right? And the thing is, we don't necessarily have to know what those three or four things are. We'll let the data tell its own story. Mm -hmm. It could be eating broccoli three times a day. It could be eating burgers three times a day, right? We just need to let people um, to use um, Jeff Kaditz uh, from Q.bio's expression, close the loop. We need to know enough about what people are doing so that we can start playing back how those things are actually having an impact internally. Uh, so the business is really there to provide, as I say, super, super easy access for absolutely anybody who recognizes the value in proactive preventative health to get the check that they need to stay on top of their body well we've both used it yes and, we um, did happily we both came back boringly uh boringly fine um well, and I, I mean looking at you two i could probably figure out what that is <laughs> I, I and you know what um of my own admission i am terrible with blood tests so anybody who is he worried, went white as a sheet i, did, <laughs> I, I went completely white as a sheet but i am I am awful. I'm the worst. And the, the problem is, is, and anybody else who doesn't like blood tests will relate to this, the more nervous you get, the less blood comes out because the more your blood vessels and capillaries start yeah, constricting. So you could co- completely create your own hell. But I have to say, um, it was pretty quick and pretty easy. And the results came back astoundingly fast. I remember actually, I did it on the Friday and by the Tuesday, I remember getting an email from you guys and I hadn't really thought about it again because uh, I did 23andMe and that took a lot longer, but a completely different test, but that had taken sure, a lot longer. Sure. So I sort of set that as the time scale, you know, a couple of weeks or something. Um, yeah, and you touched on a really interesting point. You know, we have, we've come into a market in a particular way at a particular time with a, um, a product that is leveraging actually relatively arcane testing uh, methodologies. And it's inescapably clunky. Right? Pricking your finger and bleeding into a tube is mm. as bad as it's ever going to be. Um, we, we've worked very hard at the UX actually at home. So the number of people who don't send a kit back and the number of people who fail is the lowest in the industry. But there's no getting around it, right? You are going to see your it's own It's completely blood. mechanical, yeah. Yeah, and there are some really interesting innovations that we are in the process of um, essentially trying to do some pilots with where um, companies coming out of America, I think they're actually only in the States at the moment, have developed something that proxies a mechanical leech. I was thinking about this last night when I was prepping for the interview. I was like, I wonder if you can... Mechanical leeches. I thought about about leeches. You need to get out more, dude. (laughs) (laughs) It was definitely the twilight zone. Um, But I was, I was like, I wonder if this is one of those examples where you turn to nature and go, hmm, I've been bitten by a leech and it gets quite a considerable volume of blood out of you. Um, is there anything we could learn? But yeah, then- and I mean, it's I mean they really have done just that. So there's a couple of companies, God, Tasso and Seven S Bio, and um, both of them are certainly on the brink of. I mean, look, they, they talk about just taking needles out. It still uses it's micro needles, but I mean, it's totally painless. I've done one of the two, and when I say that you don't feel anything, you really, really don't feel anything. For people who don't like the sight of blood, that might be a whole new issue. Mm. Yeah, what can you do? I, I've come to realise this. It's like you, you need the blood sample and you need an, enough to um, do meaningful tests with it. And, if you, and that requires a certain volume at the moment. Um, it does, and the volume is coming down. But um, What's causing the volume to come down? Uh, improvements in the quality of the analyzers. 
is the short answer. And, you know, even, I say even, even Roche, that tiny company, um, you know, Roche's uh, uh, Cobas 8000 platform, which um, a lot of labs use, now requires you know, five microliters of blood to run an HbA1c, I think it is, or maybe I've got the analyte wrong, but I mean, it's a tiny, tiny volume of blood. Um, is a microliter different from a milliliter? Yes, it's smaller. A lot smaller, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, the... <laughs> you've got me wondering now whether I've got that right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I've just <laughs> never heard of it. There's, there's, there's someone <laughs> screaming at their, uh, <laughs> their iPhone. <laughs> you idiot, they're the same. What does he know? <laughs> Sorry, it's Friday. I have a very long week. I'll come back to you on that. Um, yeah, so look, the... The reality is that the the analyzers are getting better, but there are um, there are sort of biomechanical issues with getting down to a particular level of blood. So um, I'm I'm sure Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos had thought through this issue, but if you look at some of the research papers, one of the challenges that you have when you take a single droplet of blood is that in that droplet of blood you have interstitial fluid and fragments of skin from the puncture that you've created using a, a lancet. Um, that gets diluted to the point that it's largely irrelevant if you take, I think the um, latest research suggests, sort of six to eight droplets of blood. Well, six to eight droplets of blood is a tiny, tiny amount of blood. Mm -hmm. um, and you know platforms like Nightingale are going to start... Um, you know, getting to the point where you can probably run nigh on every parameter on that sort of volume. Um, but as I say, I think it's really unlikely you're ever going to get to the point where it's just a single droplet for, for those reasons. Do you know what I would have been prepared to do? And I don't know if this is on your roadmap, but um, for the first one, because you took two small vials, didn't you, Ollie? And I took the medium test. Um, is I wonder if when I was donating blood if there'd been a second vial that was like this will go to sort of a central um analysis bank that can basically get pulled in to pull everybody's data in to start you know to basically improve your understanding of of collective blood and what causes good health and then i'd supported that with um some data that i maybe inputted i think i would have been prepared to do that if you go on like actually we want to know um all this other anecdotal data that you want to supply or maybe uh, a tie-in with like 23andMe or anything like that but we'll need a separate vial just to sort of I guess donate to the greater good I think that would yeah, be quite interesting. interesting I probably yeah. would have been I mean we're, we're, we're certainly in a, uh, in a place where um, you know we we ultimately want as much data as we can get our hands on for the simple reason that it will increase the quality of the predictive analytics that we're able to provide to people as we talked about I think it's um, it's it's it, it's not everyone who thinks about it at that level of um, sort of intellectual sophistication. The mechanical leeches and yeah, <laughs> fine. Um, just you, mate. It's, it's, it's fine. Don't worry. They're coming for you soon. <laughs> um, but actually, so you know, we talked a, a little bit about um, genomics already. I th I think the reality is, Thriver. You know, we've we've obviously looked at. Um, microbiome and um, uh, DNA sequencing very very closely neither of those two industries are at the point at which we perceive there is a need to integrate them with the core of what we offer people from a preventative checking service 
and it will get there i'm absolutely convinced i mean i'm personally fascinated by the gut and the microbiome but there are sort of three problems scientific consensus about what the information means isn't quite there yet um cost is still a material burden it's coming down really fast but it's still a, it's still material um and consumer awareness isn't really there yet either it's getting there faster with genomics than it is um uh, with microbiome that's really just starting out but could you test microbiome with with a blood test um you typically can't um in the sense that if you're looking at you know gut flora diversity it's a stool sample almost always um i say almost always it is a stool sample the least invasive way of harvesting it is with a uh, a stool collection. Um, <laughs> if you, I was going to say, you've done a great job at marketing blood tests on the tube and making it look user-friendly, but trying to be the Try UX designer behind test, somebody. Yeah. Sending poo in the post. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's not going to be PR easy. would be insane. But it could be really important because there's quite a lot of research at the moment into um, you know, gut flora imbalances and depression and anxiety. That's right. The um, A lot of the um, uh, a lot of the chemicals that are used in the brain that ultimately stimulate relaxation and happiness are produced in the gut and um yeah don't get me wrong i mean i think it is probably going to be one of if not the um most important areas of biology uh, over the course of the next five uh, five to ten years um certainly one of the most interesting from our perspectives mm. uh, the inherent challenge with anything like this and i think there's a um, uh, a relevant point here for DNA and I don't know it would be interesting to see what you thought about your 23andMe experience knowing what you can do about the information is <clears throat> absolutely everything when it comes to really really adding value to people who are using the product you know DNA actually isn't entirely static despite what most people think of course so you've got up regulation and down regulation of genes which is quite sort of and, but most people are not aware of that right if you go and say hey you know I've done a genomics test so great well it told me i'm um you know one fortieth norwegian um or whatever but that's it and it's static and it's never going to change so I, I don't i don't mean that dna doesn't change when i say um that it struggles slightly with having people understand what to do about the data um but i yeah with, with again with um microbiome at the point at which people can say we have seen a particular type of I'm making this up now but dysbiosis and it can be um, positively impacted by a course of probiotics or um, a particular diet type or eating regime or exercise regime and that you can monitor the change and see how it's actually come to come to improve or possibly um, get worse I think that's really interesting when you compare that to where we are with blood today that is a very much more um, understood and uh, as a consequence of it being older, there is just far more scientific consensus around what the information means. In truth, actually, that's changing um, uh, all the time as well. It's just that it's more consolidated than it is in the other areas, I think. I think directing people, educating people what to do once they have the information is is, is crucial, as you say. I think I, think I got into a, a Wikipedia um, dive once and I encountered um, looking looking into microbiome and I encountered this guy who'd gone down the same hole but 
ended up um, self-administering uh, stool transplants. So he was asking his mates for their, their stools and just plugging them up his rear end because he was convinced that if he got a stool from a non-anxious mate, he would become non-anxious. And I think there is probably um, evidence to support that, but probably not evidence to support the manner in which he chose to accomplish it. Um, and that's right. that's where and, the and whether the the relevant gut flora is a, even alive. If you do, it. I mean, you know what I mean. There's just it's kind of the wild west on yeah. that front. Um, I always am surprised when somebody goes and volunteers himself for some self experimentation in this fashion. And I think actually, I never know whether that will work. But I'm glad somebody's tried that wasn't me. Yeah, he's and a we pioneer. Can, we, yeah, we can rule it in, or we can <laughs> he's rule a it out. Pioneer. Somebody, somebody's <laughs> tried. Um, the issue I, is whether we can rule it in. Or yeah. I, I, really, I really actually I really hope we can't because that's not a life that I yeah. look forward to for an extra 10 years of, of staving off senescence um, I think something that you actually touched on so I've got kind of two thoughts uh, split in we're going to go with this one um, that I find fascinating and I think maybe possible for for blood is endocrinology and I'm quite interested by the idea that hormones have the effect of upregulating and downregulating genes and I imagine that's something you could probably start testing in blood because I know as a healthy male there's some debate as to what your kind of healthy testosterone levels should be and as you get older you get yeah. some people saying they should start re-injecting young male um, have, you got, have you guys heard of andropause? No. So I think it's going to be a really really interesting um, it's not new but I think it's going to become more popular so andropause is essentially male menopause and it are as I understand it, articulates um, or describes a, a set of circumstances where um, in the olden days we probably would have described it as a midlife crisis. But it's <laughs> often linked to a drop in testosterone, yeah. um, which means you, uh, you, know, you tend to be more sluggish, you have lower libido mm. to counteract those things, you drink more alcohol. You buy a sports car. Buy, <laughs> buy a sports car. <laughs> Still not getting laid, so you wonder what's happening there. Um, and you end up essentially in this kind of pretty vicious spiral where the things that you're doing as a consequence of having lower testosterone mm. contribute to lower testosterone. So drinking loads of booze lowers your testosterone levels, right? That's and interesting. Round it goes. So um, picking up the point on, um, on hormones, absolutely. So we're about to launch a um, product for... People who have a thyroid problem, taking quite a long time to really look hard at, um, you know, what people specifically need to be thinking about in the thyroid space because there's a lot of conflicting information out there. It's quite uh, difficult enough because you have hyper and hypo thyroidism, yeah. which, um, yeah, seemingly quite difficult to detect. But also um, stuff like Hashimoto's and stuff like that. So it's yeah, that's right. And slightly frustratingly for most people who go to the GP with a suspected thyroid problem. GPs for various reasons are not able to run the test that anyone who manages a thyroid condition knows they need to run. Mm. Um, it's just not really something that is available on the systems that they use. It's kind of bananas. But that's the consequence of living in an environment that's restricted by the NICE guidelines. It's or supported by the NICE guidelines, I should say. That's probably a better reflection of the truth. Um, and then actually on the uh, on the hormones front, female fertility, another very, very interesting potential application. And uh, there are potentially ways of thinking about not using blood as a collection method. So 
you know urine actually can be fairly useful in certain circumstances uh, in particular for things like okay it's not um, hormones but heavy metals mm-hmm. um, and again the, the the means of analyzing those bodily fluids will much like they will with blood get better over time uh, they'll just get higher fidelity you'll need actually volumes less of a problem with urine but yeah well it's quite <coughs> interesting about the recombination angle because I was reading about cancer seek and they are all about detecting various forms of cancer in blood um, and their sort of big proof point as to why they're better than just taking standardized blood samples is that they recombine it with your genetic information as well to use sort of dual signals which obviously increases the statistical probability that there's going to be um, some basis for that diagnosis and I wonder actually with you guys if you can start to build out a fuller health profile by taking let's say a urine sample and a blood test if you can start to recombine the two tests to sort of I guess be more than the sum of their parts which would be quite interesting yeah for sure I mean there's a really interesting question um, around you know collect data though you don't necessarily know what it's going to tell you um, but find the correlations when you've got a sufficient volume of it mm-hmm um, the challenge with that is articulating that to consumers because that's a little bit of just trust us we're going to figure this out eventually but mm. hey you're going to pay for it right now and actually on that point you know we as a company work really hard to ensure the products that we put out aren't front running the market so it would be tempting to bolt on a urine test and a um, cortisol test and a genome sequencing profile and a gut flora diversity test but you're looking at a thousand pounds to analyze it all right mm. and probably another two thousand pounds to interpret it with some degree of effectiveness and the market's just not prepared to pay that today right i mean you might catch a couple of ceos in the city but that's that's not the product we're looking to build moreover if that's the kind of volume of data you're going to actually pull together it's very unlikely you're going to get to the point where your algorithms have got enough fuel to be able to draw meaningful deductions from it well there was somebody i was reading as well i think again internet facts are always a bit dangerous but saying that something like 1000 to 2000 proteins can be measured in the blood so it's like i imagine within the blood work you're collecting there's already an absolute sea of investigation you can begin um a question i had um because i think Elon Musk's take on things are quite interesting and with regards to how let's say he treats the relanding of boosters to reduce significantly reduce the cost of space travel with blood testing what is the biggest most sort of burdensome cost that you know ideally could be reduced in the future um, that you see at the moment Uh, so I think there are there are realistically two one is the interpretation and analysis and to some degree that's a machine learning problem and um, I don't presuppose that it will be machines on their own interpreting information I think there will always be certainly for our lifetimes a degree of need for someone with some medical training to be seen to be involved in what you're ultimately being told if it's at that level of sort of medical grade testing that we as Thriver kind of sit within. So for sure, I think there's a huge amount of um, uh, cost saving that will come of getting that right. And then 
I think in uh, in practical terms, the testing itself, that's the biggest element of our uh, variable costs. And there's a couple of ways that you can think about that. One is the sort of decentralization of testing where you end up with, it's referred to as point of care testing, uh, which is the um, very medical way of framing it. But it basically means the ability to test in a non-laboratory environment. So it might be that it's in a pharmacy. It might even be that it's in your home. And that is uh, coming, you know, whether it was Theranos looking to put testing hardware in Walgreens or, <clears throat> you know, Genolite doing something similar, you are going to find that the cost of testing is going to come down materially. Is there a direct analog to reusing, um, reusing boosters? Um, I think the point at which that I'm going to think about that. The, the point at which we've got something sitting in our, you know, in our skin substrate, providing a constant readout that's it's not reusable as such, but you've you've completely turned on its head the concept of sporadic access to the data. I think that's probably the point at which you 10x the, um, maybe even 100x the. Uh, I guess the volume of data, maybe not necessarily the cost, but certainly the volume of data. And there are some players out there doing a good job uh, in the sort of early throes of that industry. So um, Abbott have a thing called the Freestyle Libre. You guys have come across it. It's a, a little patch that you uh, stick to your arm. It's a nice way of putting it. It's actually a patch with a needle on it <laughs> that you jab into your arm and then keep the patch on. Um, I know because I wore it for a month. Uh, and it's for diabetics. I mean, it was, it's a, a brilliant piece of equipment. You know, diabetics typically are pricking their fingers and bleeding into little glucometers um, multiple times a day. With this, there's just a little thing. If you've got an Android phone, you just tap your phone against it any time wow. of the day and you get an instant... Is it just glucose, the readout? Just glucose. Not cholesterol? No. No. Um, and there are some questions around the accuracy of the test, and there are some other people trying to do analogous things. But the point is, um, there will come a time where the idea that we didn't have easy access, by which I mean you know, completely frictionless access to what's happening inside our bodies, is completely bananas. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're doing with Thriver in terms of you know, ripping down timelines and putting a, a really, really intuitive layer in front of it and starting to think about what the, um, uh, the, the, the big data implications could be is really just the first throws of, of where this is going to go. On the topic of uh, Theranos, is, is that a company that, that you've been confused with? And if so, has it been a, a useful or a not useful confusion? Because I think there was a TechCrunch yeah, article about you that disambiguates. Yes, between um, you. Yeah, we uh, we we get asked about it a lot. I think that's fair to say. In fact, we get asked about it by most investors, but no one else. Right. We have had, I think, one customer ever ask us about Theranos. And the reality is we're just doing something incredibly different. You know, mission terms may be a little similar. Um, I think there's lots of people with um, a mission that is allied to the notion of proactive preventative health. Mm. Um, yeah, we're just not building equipment that's trying to analyze blood. So it can be a or very lie, short Or lying about it. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that's, that's it. Is I um, remember... I. Th 
reading basically it's such, such a dangerous story there actually regarding your investors and I can see why they asked because um, she just was incredibly well connected and I think her dad worked at Enron and they had an amazing contact book and that's what you don't hear about the glamorous story of a 19 year old Stanford dropout or whatever she was who um, then goes on to create this amazing company is that she was born into considerable means um, and then that's putting it lightly I think yeah well yeah and then all these investors came in and unfortunately then the pyramid was built on the reputations of those who came before and somebody said um, the board they had was more fitting for invading Iraq than it was for <laughs> for um, for doing blood tests or, or having yeah. mechanical means what I didn't like about that at all is you know it's fine deceiving people about light technology your dating app and it, oh it's mm. erroneously matched you to a bad fit for you but it told you that you were a great match so well, that's one thing but if you're lying to people about the quality of their health because i think there's a big issue that you have to face of, of trust um which is to say somebody may put all of their trust into your into your hands and say okay hamish you've got me covered and then something goes wrong and that's uh you you kind of yeah it's a it's a huge burden um and i think you know the i think the thing that was most curious to me about the way that whole um debacle unfolded was you know you have to you have to involve the scientific community to some degree i think i completely get that when you're developing something that proprietary and you've got um companies like some of those I've already talked about with more money than God who wouldn't think twice about you know trying to get hold of your technology if they could you know sure being secretive is one thing but it just the the culture that was set in that organization seemed to be something um I, I don't know it just it seemed it seemed completely at odds with me I, I didn't I didn't I didn't relate to it at all um sure I'm a very different character to, uh, to Elizabeth Holmes but um, yeah, it just seemed it, it just seemed very odd, but uh, you know, hats off to her. She was trying to do something very big and very very difficult that would require a lot of money, and um, I applaud her for you know the ambition level certainly. There's a whole lot more we'd love to dive into with you, but I know you've got an appointment building, some more furniture. Actually, I've got to go and get my son. Get your son. Oh. Um, <laughs> so one thing I can't be late for. So maybe a, an, another conversation in due course. Yeah, talk it's been really interesting. I quantified like self and yeah, and I mean, we've like only that. really scratched the surface. We, we, we have indeed only scratched the surface. Um, do you have five minutes just to to wrap up the the last little bit? Um, you want to do that bit? Yes, right. So we will, we will try and sort of extract some some entrepreneurial goodness, especially if you've been through the NEF, NEF program and have some wisdom to share, which is to say, if you had a book that you read that you'd say to anybody going through that experience, maybe the latter, as you say, not being that sort of born into entrepreneurship mindset, but wanting to move into it. Do you have any um, recommendations? So I um, I'm going to be a little bit controversial here. Good. Donald Trump's. <laughs> um, no. Uh, so, not controversial in that sense, sorry. No one in that exciting. Um, Tim Ferriss' Tools of Titans is a, an mm. amazingly sort of tactical toolkit of stuff that I'm sure everyone will talk about. And it's just because I read it fairly recently at the top of mind. 
But I wanted to share something, and um, I couldn't believe it had happened. So he he released his uh, his latest book, um, Tribe of Mentors, yes. and something happened to me that I it has never happened before, and it hasn't happened since. I read one review on Amazon, and it instantaneously stopped me buying that book and has changed what I would otherwise say as a recommendation on this podcast. And the review basically said, have you noticed how none of the people who he interviews in Tribe of Mentors read books like this? (laughs) They read fiction and philosophy and poetry, stuff to expand and entertain and enlighten and broaden horizons. And I think there's this there's this there's this kind of this, this dichotomy on the one hand there's a skills gap and sure i would like to be you know incredibly fit and love eating incredibly nutritious food and never <laughs> drink alcohol and whatever but and i'm lo- you know looking to build up a set of skills life skills that enable me to get the best out of myself but equally um i, th- I think there's a, a sort of oft overlooked reality which is great ideas come from being inspired by stuff and getting um a sideways look at life it's the synthesis the whole creative process that you can't just get by learning by rote someone else's skills yeah that's right and um i don't know maybe that's slightly at odds with the point that i made earlier about different types of entrepreneur yeah. uh, or, or not i don't know i don't um, think it is though i think you're right i think sometimes um people who who we could throw back to um have a lot of wisdom to impart and sometimes i think we think sitting at the forefront of technology that we have all the answers and sometimes you realize they kind of figured it out but the technology and the means of measuring it wasn't there and it requires deep thought and a lot of what they did was writing yeah deep uh, you know as a humanities student i couldn't i couldn't agree more um anyway we'll let you go in just just one second because as a means of community building we'd like to engage our listeners um and if there was one thing that we could ask them that would help you and thrive the most, what would it be? Letting blood, other than just letting <laughs> yeah. blood onto the streets of London. Yeah, just, just bleed over <laughs> their office and scream the name driver in some sort of slightly maniacal voice. Um, I, I'd love to know how people manage their health. And that's not a tricky, complicated question. It's, it's deliberately not. We're going through a piece of uh, research at the moment to try and validate how mass market Thriver is. Because you know, we look at the world, we're like, this is something that when you walk out onto the street, you say, hey, do you think that getting a regular check in on your health is a good idea? Most people over a certain age anyway, um, and I mean like 30, not mm. <laughs> 70, um, I believe are gonna say, yeah, sure, it's a good idea, right? So are you doing it? Most people say, no, I'm not doing it. And what I'm therefore trying to get my head around is how mass market this thing could be. And one of the cornerstones of that piece of research is how do people actually manage their health? You know, what are the reference behaviors that they engage with that indicate that um, they really do think about it or act Mm. with respect to it in a particular way? And yeah, what's, really what's the best way for people to, to reach you with that information? Um, you can email me, hamish at thriver.co.co, um, or you can tweet us at thriverhealth, uh, T-H-R-I-V-A health, um, 
or a smoke signal, carry a pigeon, <laughs> all the usual suspects. One last thing I would say as well, actually, to anybody who does listen, is I think you guys produce excellent and highly responsible content on your blog about people educating themselves about their health. So I think if anybody is listening, I would thoroughly recommend, even if they don't do a pinprick test, that you guys are generously giving out content on that front, which I think seeks to really improve people's um, health outcomes in itself. So, um, Thanks. Yeah, I mean, we're only just getting going with it. It's um, It's been a... Bit of, uh, a bit of a labour of love by a couple of guys in the team, um, Claire in particular. And um, yeah, we're, we're going to constantly be upgrading that and trying to get more good, well-grounded, easy-to-read um, content up there. Hamish, thank you for your time. We'll let you go. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Cheers guys. Bye. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup Mike, M-I-C. Or get us an email, audiored at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.